Walking distance is supported by Gosmer Gear. On my recent shakedown hike on the Superior Hiking Trail, I had big wind on a ridge. But my Gossamer Gear trekking pole single tent called the One barely moved. At only 17 ounces, the One packs down to the size of a hamster. But it's bomb-proof with loads of room inside to sit up, store your gear, and stay dry and safe from the bugs. That's why Gossamer Gear is my choice for the Continental Divide Trail. Oh, and I'll carry it in the Gossamer Gear Gorilla 50-liter ultralight backpack. And as a listener of Walking Distance, you can score 15% off your next order at gossamergear.com. Just use the code WALKINGDISTANCE, and you'll get 15% off some of the highest quality lightweight gear out there. Walking Distance is your code on your next order at gossamergear.com. Scenery is a splendid thing when it is viewed by a man who is in a contented frame of mind. Give him a poor breakfast after he's had a bad night's sleep, and he will not care how fine your scenery is. He's not going to enjoy it. It's pretty hard not to agree with that quote. It comes from a speech given by Stephen Mather to a group of park managers at the University of California in Berkeley in 1915. The moment was fraught since Mather needed to convince men of influence that in order to preserve the fledgling national parks from private exploitation, the parks needed proper management. At the time, the parks were overseen by a smattering of agencies, including the Department of Agriculture and the Department of War. But Mather knew if places as grand as Yosemite were to be preserved for generations, they needed a national park service. He also knew that talk alone wasn't going to convince these some 20 men to lobby for the legislation required to create a new governmental agency. So his plan was to take them into the backcountry to experience the place for themselves. But he was also keenly aware of the fact that, just like hikers and backpackers today, it's hard to truly enjoy the wilderness if you're hungry. To ensure these excursions succeeded, there was only one person for the job of backcountry cook. This was left to a congenial Chinese-American with seemingly magical culinary skills, a man who'd already charmed the members of the U.S. Geological Survey for which he worked, and a person who we credit today with helping establish the National Park Service. That man was named Tai Sing. From the trek, this is Walking Distance, a show for hikers, trekkers, trampers, and wanderers that proves any place worth seeing can be reached by walking there, and that it's even better when you carry all you need in a backpack. I'm Blissful Hiker. My name is Yin Yin Chan, and I work as a park ranger in Yosemite National Park. Tai Singh actually worked as a backcountry chef and he worked for the U.S. Geological Survey. I think he was really relatable. He was born in um, Virginia City in the state of Nevada. He spoke English fluently, and he also spoke Chinese. He just got along really well with all the people that met him, and there are stories about, you know, from his role in working with Stephen Mather, who was to become the first director of the National Park Service, stories of how they loved this, this chef and 
One person loved as much he parted with his favorite red shirt that Tai Singh somehow liked. <laughs> tai Singh was an American who lived at a time that might resonate with today, a time of intense hostility towards Asian Americans. People of Chinese descent in particular were excluded through taxation from much of the gold rush and were also pushed to the margins through the Chinese Exclusion Act, which forbid the naturalization of immigrants already living and working here. They were also unable to testify in court, most often in response to violent acts against them. And yet, they persisted and survived, finding work where they could, in many cases. Those were jobs in hotels and on road crews that benefited the national parks, particularly Yosemite. They brought a lot of these skills from China, from thousands of years of you know, developing better agricultural systems to help um, farm the land, to grow rice and grow vegetables. Um, and they also were really good at building roads and systems of roads. They were excellent in building dry drywall construction. So rock upon rock without any mortar in between. And we still see these rock walls throughout the Sierra Nevada and the foothills of the Sierra Nevada today, and they're still standing. Two roads that Chinese Americans built through Yosemite are the Tioga and Wawona roads. The Tioga Road connects the valley to the east side and is the highest road in California at nearly 10,000 feet. They built that in 130 days, and it was a 56-mile road. So you can imagine half a mile road every day is approximately how much time it took them. And that was through really difficult granite terrain and trees and rocks and boulders. And we're talking at a time when there's no bulldozers. I mean, this is all built by hand. Right. It was hand tools. I mean, if you see photographs of these black and white photos of them working, they're using shovels, wheelbarrows, um, no power drills or no power equipment during that time period. Because of their incredible work ethic and ingenuity, many Chinese Americans thrived in the late 1800s and into the new century in spite of anti-Asian sentiment. They developed skills and jobs that needed to be done but were often left to the minority. So back to Tai Singh. He was a cook for the U.S. Geological Survey, which spent a great deal of time in the backcountry. Stephen Mather poached him for his two parties to convince VIPs that a National Park Service needed to be created, but also to inspect the route of the brand new John Muir Trail. One of the most famous photographs from these parties is of a group of men sitting at a long table covered with a white linen tablecloth. There's real crockery and metal cutlery on the table. They're surrounded by towering pines, and their seat at this table is a fallen log. Tai Singh is standing behind them with his hands on his hips, wearing a white apron. And it seems as if he's willing the photographer to finish the job so he can get back to his art. I think he planned really well. He knew how many people he had to feed. It wasn't just this group of men, um, the Mather Mountain Party group, which was about, I think, 19 men in total. They had, you know, packers and people that helped as well. So that was probably over 30 people that he and his assistant, he had an assistant named Eugene, who was also Chinese American. And they had to figure out how much cantaloupe to buy, how much meat to bring, and how to keep the meat fresh um, over the course of two weeks. 
he would wrap the meat in wet newspapers that he would soak in the cool mountain stream. So every day it would be in a place where the cool breeze would sort of evaporate and keep the, the meat cool, which I don't know how he did that because I think of backpacking today and how hot it gets <laughs> in the daytime. How did he keep meat from spoiling? But somehow he did. And the meals were elaborate. They weren't just like a simple one or two things for breakfast. It was like five different things, a five course meal for each meal, um, except for lunch, which he would pack a, a lunch sack for each of these men so that they would have lunch in the field. One of the men in the group was Robert Sterling Yard. Yard was an old friend of Mather from their days as journalists in New York. Now, Mather went on to become a millionaire and hired his old friend to chronicle the event of these Mather Mountain parties. Robert Stringard was actually a very good friend of Stephen Mather, and they met when they were both journalists in New York. And Mather was really wealthy. He was a self-made millionaire, and he decided to hire his friend Robert Stringard to become the, the writer of all these incredible portfolios of national parks to help with this campaign to share with the American public how incredible these national parks are. So Robert Stringard went on the second Mather Mountain Party trip in 1916. And it was this first encounter with Tai Singh, and he wrote this in his journal after that first dinner. To me, Tai Singh had assumed apocryphal proportions. The extraordinary recitals of his astonishing culinary exploits had been more than I could quite believe, but I believe them all now and more. I shall not forget that dinner. Soup, trout, chops, fried potatoes, string beans, fresh bread, hot apple pie, cheese, and coffee. It was the first of many equally elaborate and equally appreciated. Tai Singh must have known how important these parties were. Because he was a Chinese-American living in 1916, he would not have had the opportunity to be one of the men sitting at the table but he contributed in a way that influenced their decision-making. Tai Sing loved the outdoors. He loved cooking and creating extraordinary recitals for these men who would go on to establish the John Muir Trail and the National Park Service. And Tai Sing went one step further by leaving each one of these men personal notes by their place settings. You know, he was really good with words. And on the final night of this backcountry wilderness experience, he wrote fortunes, um, words for each individual member of his party that was so poetic. For Mather, who apparently was a really, you know, congenial person, he loved to make people laugh. He was a jokester. He was a leader that people loved. He wrote, the sound of your laughter will be in the mountains even after you're in the sky. He also wrote for, you know, some of the people like Wilbur McClure, who would be the person that would develop the John Muir Trail. He was a California state engineer. He said, long may you build the paths through the mountains. So he knew a lot about each person. He had something personal to say. I think that was also why that trip was such an impressionable trip for the people on the Mountain Mountain Party. And these people were went out to really push for the formation of the National Park Service as a result of that trip. Known as the gourmet chef of the Sierra and the philosopher of the Sierra, 
Tai Singh played his hand well and is someone to be remembered and revered for the key role that he assumed in turning the tide of public opinion to save and preserve our public lands. Interestingly, this amazing man was already well-known by his co-workers in the U.S. Geological Survey, and they already celebrated and honored his service in a singular way. Tai Singh was so loved by these map makers and surveyors that in 1899, um, the chief geographer Robert Bradford Marshall named a peak after Tai Singh, and it's right on Yosemite's park boundary called Singh Peak. When we come back, we'll talk with the man who's created a yearly pilgrimage of a three-day backpack trip to Singh Peak in Yosemite National Park. I'm Blissful Hiker, and you're listening to Walking Distance. Walking Distance is supported by John Reamer and Associates. On a backpack trip, you wouldn't think of heading out without a map, a compass, and a guidebook. Planning for a healthy financial future is much the same. It's a step-by-step process. And at John Reamer and Associates, you'll get personalized financial advice to help you reach your goals today and tomorrow. With the right financial advisor, life can be brilliant. Be inspired at johnreamer.com. A private wealth advisory practice of Ameriprise Financial Services, LLC, located in Minnesota with over 30 years of experience. This is Walking Distance from the Trek. I'm Blissful Hiker. Jack Shu came to the United States at the age of six. He worked for nearly three decades as superintendent of California Parks and Recreation in the Office of Community Involvement at the National Park Service, as well as board president of the Cleveland National Forest Foundation. He tells me that his entire career has been about encouraging large institutions like the National Parks to tell more inclusive stories about our shared heritage. So institutional change is uh, very difficult, especially with organizations that are revered and have these wonderful stories already embedded in their past. Uh, So when you go to Yosemite, you only hear mostly about uh, John Muir, Ansel Adams, and maybe Teddy Roosevelt. And and I think when I first heard about Tai Singh and other cooks and workers and the road builders, I thought um, we need to change that story. So I was not surprised, but still shocked. But for Yosemite, one of the revered gems of the National Park Service, to leave out this story uh, was really uh, quite sad. But like a lot of Asian Americans, he was not entirely aware of the story of Tai Singh or other Chinese Americans' contributions to the building and preservation of Yosemite and the national parks. So he got involved. He combined his efforts with the Chinese American Historical Society of Southern California and Yosemite National Park to design an annual pilgrimage to Sing Peak. Now, his idea was not just to create a one-off hike, but to dedicate a decade of his life to leading this trip. How I came about setting this goal, this pilgrimage, comes from my experience early on in my career when we wanted, so a group of people wanted to um, save uh, Mazinar and tell the Mazinar story just on the other side of the Sierras. And at that time, there was talk of creating it, uh, creating a state park. And then later, of course, it became a, a national monument. The beginning of that occurred with a uh, pilgrimage. It actually was a trip of the Japanese uh, that were interned to go to Mazinar to honor the people who had died there. 
uh, on an annual basis. So when I was in college, I knew that that pilgrimage uh, was a regular event and that later that pilgrimage helped the advocates that eventually created the National Park unit at Manzanar. And that took many, many years to keep that whole idea going. So I knew how those processes took time and that you had to do something over and over to have some impact. Located in the southeastern part of Yosemite, about an hour and a half drive from Oakhurst, California, it's a rugged hike to Sing Peak, requiring two nights out, with base camping at a spectacular alpine lake. The peak itself is at 10,500 feet, with a bit of rock scrambling to the summit. Both Jack Shu and Yan Yan Chen have walked the pilgrimage each year. That part of the peak, if you look at a geologic map of where the glaciers came through and carved out Yosemite, it wasn't glaciated at the top of Sing Peak. So it's a really rugged terrain on top, but all below and all the mountains around us are carved through and smoothed out by the glaciers that came through the Sierra Nevada multiple times. So you see these incredible peaks around you, and then you see these lakes that were formed when the glaciers left. So you have all these lakes spotting the area below and it's it's just a beautiful wilderness area and it uh, had some you know many uh, co-benefits uh, one is it forced me to stay in shape and, and it forced me to the backpack so that wasn't a bad thing it helps my health and the hike itself is just right in, with regards to having the amount of uh, challenge for uh, new backpackers and even some experienced backpackers uh, there's no technical climbing involved, so you don't have to be someone who's having to worry about uh, carrying ropes and technical uh, climbing. It does involve some off-trail hiking, meaning that uh, there's some rock scrambling and uh, enough of a challenge that uh, someone who regularly backpacks uh, would uh, really feel rewarded when they get to the peak. Rugged, yes, but Jack helped a woman in her 70s up the peak, one who had never backpacked before, named Gladys Wong. Gladys called me and said she wants to go to the peak, and I started talking to her. You know, I told her she needs good boots, and, and she kept on telling me, I'm strong. I walk around these hills in San Francisco all the time. And I had never met her, but, you know, she's describing to me how she's a strong woman, athletically strong, and, um, and strong-willed as well. So we, we would have these conversations, this was months before the hike, and she would say things like, uh, um, you know, I got boots, and then she'll call me back and say, oh, I got a backpack. And I would ask things like, uh, Gladys, um, how about a sleeping bag? You need a backpacking? I said, I got a sleeping bag, but it would be like a camping sleeping bag and weigh you know, several pounds more than it should. And then she would call me back, uh, a few weeks later, I got a sleeping bag. So, oh, that's great. I'm borrowing my, my son-in-law's sleeping bag. Gladys, that's great. How tall is your uh, son-in-law? Oh, he's 6'2 or so. Gladys, how tall are you? Oh, I'm 5, you know, something, or maybe 5'2. <laughs> uh, but that went on and on. But she made it uh, that day. Uh, and that was one of those years in which we had a lot of snow. And uh, the things she said to me later, like... Um, she persevered, she kept hiking because she, she thought about her mother and how her mother made it through uh, as an immigrant and had uh, a lot of will and that she needed to uh, to have that, that strength to make it to the peak. And that's what helped her uh, make the hike. 
In late April, the United States Congress, in response to the uptick in violence and harassment of Asian Americans, overwhelmingly passed an anti-Asian hate bill. The legislation would direct the Department of Justice to expedite the review of hate crimes and help them establish ways to report such incidents online and perform public outreach. And this is exactly the point for Jack Shu, this idea of public outreach, that we need to know about these stories from our past so we see Asian Americans as Americans and not as the other. I think in part that's because of the Asian story of how Asian Americans helped build the United States is not well told. We don't see Asian Americans as part of their American population and, and fabric uh, of the country. And consequently, it's easy to label Asian Americans as foreigners, as problem makers, and all the other stereotypes that come with, with any uh, group that the majority population wants to pick on. If the story of Tai Singh, the story of uh, others that were in Yosemite was part of the fabric of, of the narrative of Yosemite, that would help that quite, quite a bit. It would humanize Asian Americans as well as be inclusive when we talk about the story of the park. I'm really happy that Congress just passed this act. I think that what I've felt before this past year is Asian Americans are often overlooked in their contributions. And when we talk about the struggles of people of color, any time in the media, I'm always seeing there's a lack of mentioning Asian Americans in the media. They often highlight other racial groups, but Asian Americans have been left out of the conversation for so long. And when I did this research on Yosemite, one of the reasons why I really wanted to share this story is to really highlight that we have had such a huge role here and we've had so many struggles and I want people to realize, you know, where we came from and also why we need to, to address these issues so that they don't happen and continue to happen into the future. This summer, Yosemite National Park will open an exhibit in one of the original Chinese laundry buildings in Wawona Village. And the story of this particular group's part in making the national parks what they are will be on display, including the story of Tai Singh. You know, what's ironic is Yosemite has a lot of Chinese tourists that come through. It's on the bucket list of Chinese tour buses. Their method of touring a country is by, uh, it's a checkoff list. You know, it's, it's like a bucket list. Uh, so Yosemite, is, of course, is on that bucket list. They drive on these roads uh, and spend maybe 15 minutes at each uh, photo site and then move on not realizing that those roads were originally built by Chinese workers. Several Asian-American hikers are taking on the challenge this season of raising awareness of the issues that we're grappling with today, including diversity on the trail and confronting head-on AAPI hate. And they're doing this while they're hiking the iconic long-distance trails. My advice to them is to not only keep at these endeavors, which I know are great building tools for the individual, I've gotten more out of the pilgrimage than I could have imagined in terms of my personal growth. In addition to that, we need to change our culture, our society, and these institutions. And that's going to take time and patience, and we're going to learn how to do it better. Uh, but these are huge challenges that we have to meet. Uh, so my advice to them is not only take on these challenges, but if they can, to think of institutional change uh, with the organizations, with stories that are told on by media, 
and the stories that are repeated by naturalists, historians. And that's how we're going to have a greater contribution as we uh, do these uh, these hikes. Uh, they're important for our community, but they're also important for our entire society. I really am happy to hear that there are more Asian Americans that are hiking and backpacking. And I think that the more of us that you know share our, our joy in being in the outdoors and the fact that we're Americans too, and we love everything about America that has to do with preserving and protecting these natural places and, and introducing more people of color into the outdoors. I think that's something that I highly encourage. And I just hope that others will also support us and, and encourage us and that this is something that will continue on. If you're interested in taking part in the Sing Peak pilgrimage, there's more in the show notes. And do keep in touch about your experiences as a hiker and also what you might like us to cover on the podcast. You can always write us directly at walkingdistanceatthetrek.co. And thanks again to today's title sponsor, Gosmer Gear, manufacturers of high-quality, lightweight backpacking gear and accessories, and my choice for the Continental Divide Trail. You can save 15% off your next order at gossamergear.com. Just use the code WALKINGDISTANCE, all one word, and you'll get 15% off your next order at gossamergear.com. If you like what you hear, be sure to share with friends and give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. That really helps other people find the show. One thing I didn't mention is that the pilgrimage really pays homage to Tai Singh with this giant potluck dinner at the end, where everyone tries to outdo each other. We'd have different themes for those potlucks. Uh, so one year, the theme was how to make Chinese food without Chinese food. <laughs> <laughs> and then I, I got I got pushback from a number of people saying, Jack, but the early Chinese had all these dry staples and other things that were imported. Look at the manifests of the boats that came from China. <laughs> so, I, so I changed that a little bit and said, well, there's certain foods you're allowed to, to have, um, from soy sauce to a few dried goods, but generally you had to rough it. Our theme music was composed by Daniel Nass. And thanks so much to Zach Davis, Jackie Marusiak, and Tina Mullen. I'm Blissful Hiker, and this is Walking Distance from The Trek. Mm-hmm.